Heavenly Father, you are our rock. We are so thankful, Father, that we can proclaim that we hide ourselves in you, that we wear the righteousness of your son, that that is the new robe that we get to put on every day. Every day we are prodigals. Every day we sin. Every day we turn from you. We wander. Every day we come home and you take out the, the new robe, the ring. You There's a feast for us. There's a welcome. There is grace upon grace. What a joy it is to sing that we can hide ourselves in Christ. And Lord, I pray that you would protect us from ever trying to prove ourselves through our works, from trying to be enough for this world, enough for other people, living lives where other people have to be enough for us. Oh Lord, may we be a people of grace, living lives on the hope of grace and grace alone. Lord, may it be the great hope of our eternity and our salvation, and may it be the great hope we carry on our hearts every day and that we minister in love to those around us. In Christ's name I pray, amen. amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, you can uh, turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. The title of our message this morning is Living on Grace. We're continuing our uh, Galatians series. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Tim St. John. I'm the counseling pastor here at Lighthouse Community Church, and Happy New Year. It's just wonderful to be in this new year with you. I am so excited for what God is going to do in and through Lighthouse Community Church here in Torrance over 2024. Uh, before I begin, I just want to give a quick reminder about a conference that's coming up at the end of this month on January 26th and 27th. The title of the conference is Counseling Youth, Gospel Hope for Teenage Hearts. And, and the conference is meant to really come alongside, equip, and encourage those who care for teens. Now, I know you might be thinking that mainly applies to parents of teens or those who work with teens, uh, maybe future parents of teens, so young parents, but I think it applies to all of us, our whole church. We all need to know how to love and serve those who are in that season of transition in those teenage years. I think that that is a season of life where we maybe just say, hey, they're really busy, they're working really hard, school is really demanding, I'm just gonna give them their space, but we need to be equipped to know how to love and to serve and to really value them. They are essential to the body of Christ. They are essential brothers and sisters. And I don't know if they always feel essential, if they feel incredibly valued and, and cherished. And so let's, let's go to this conference. Let's get equipped. Let's think about how we can really cherish and love these precious brothers and sisters who are in our midst. You can register online for that conference. Um, honestly, you can register during my sermon and I won't be offended at all. Uh, online on, during the Church Center app. Today is the last day to sign up to receive a free book, Age of Opportunity by Paul Tripp, so please sign up. Again, we're in Galatians chapter 3, verses 19 through 25 this morning. And as Pastor Jason mentioned last week, Galatians is, is Paul's passionate plea. It's his letter pleading with the Galatians uh, to address a works mindset that was taking root in Galatia. It's different than all of Paul's other letters, and he is coming out of the gate just begging and pleading and demanding that this church not surrender the gospel. I think it's particularly near and dear to Paul's heart because he was saved out of this religion of works righteousness, 
right? A religion that told him he was saved and made acceptable to God on the basis of what he did. Now, he hears the gospel of grace is being warped into a false gospel of works by the Judaizers. Now, the Judaizers, if, if you're kind of new to this series, they are a group that embraced Christ only partially, right? They called themselves Christians, but they demanded that Jewish laws, particularly circumcision, were required for salvation. I think Acts 15 verse 1 summarizes their position really clearly, which said, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And Paul is calling out this heresy. I think the verse that summarizes Paul's clearest argument, the clearest, is Galatians 2.16, where he writes, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. That sentence is his thesis. It is his theme. It is his reason for writing this book. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. If we have to do good works in order to be justified to God before God, to be acceptable to him, to receive his love, if I have to earn it, then we will live in constant fear and anxiety and confusion and shame and frustration and hopelessness because we know, we, if we really think about it, even our best works, like even my sermon right now lacks perfect intentions. Our sinfulness touches everything we do, everything. And the law exists to show us our need for grace. The law is not a yellow brick road of works that leads us to God. It reveals our desperate need for grace. Now, at this point in our study of Galatians, you might be kind of sitting back and relaxing because you're like, I know the doctrine of justification by faith, Pastor Tim. Thank you. I'm, I'm really ready to receive a good reminder today of the justification by faith, right? I believe salvation is not of works because that would be boasting in ourselves and not in God. I know that we, are, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, unacceptable to a holy God. I was living for myself and that is why Christ came to die, to save us, not as a response to our good works, but to display his grace and love to rescue us. I know, Pastor Tim, that justification is by faith alone. Don't worry, I'm not gonna be tempted to believe what the Galatians did. But as we look at this passage where Paul is clarifying the law, I want us to consider where we unintentionally add the works, add our works to the gospel in the way we live our lives. I mean, we might tell our kids salvation is by grace through faith, but does our love and acceptance and pursuit of them preach that same gospel of grace to them every day? I want us to consider where the law shows up in our relationships with each other. What do people think they need to do or be in order to be acceptable to us? What do we feel like we need to do to be acceptable before others? Like for some of you, it even comes up in your relationship with God, right? You feel just continually unacceptable to God. He feels far from you. You never have felt fully forgiven. You've never felt fully free. The confusion of law and grace not only plagued the Galatian church through the Judaizers, it is a disease that haunts all of our hearts every day. We want to be good enough for people, good enough for ourselves. We want to prove ourselves. We want to be accepted, and we want to be accepted on the basis of our works. And often we want people around us to fulfill 
our law to receive our acceptance. So to protect, so to protect us from the law, wrong use of the law, we're going to consider three purposes of the law that lead us to live on grace. Three purposes of the law that lead us to live on grace. And the first is the law reveals deadness. The law reveals deadness. Right? The, the sooner we accept our helpless state and the helpless state of everyone around us and the helpless state of our world, the sooner we're going to stop looking for life here. And that is a gift the law gives us. Paul says in verse 19, if you're with me in Galatians 3, verse 19, why then the law? It was added because of the transgressions. In other words, why was the law given? Not for Israel to see how righteous they were, but to see their sinfulness. The command, do not covet, was not given so people would feel really good about themselves, super secure in their own righteousness. It wasn't so people would say, yeah, I've, I've never wanted what anyone else has had. That command and all the others were given so that everyone receiving the law would cry out for mercy, right? would say with Isaiah, woe is me, I'm undone, I, I covet all the time. Or say with the tax collector in Luke 18, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, I covet all the time. The law was meant to strip us of all confidence that we have in the flesh so that we wouldn't hope in ourselves or in anything in this world at all. So that we would confess that our only hope is the sheer mercy and grace of God. To say that any part of the law would make us righteous or would reveal our righteousness not only lies to us about our helpless state, it robs Christ of the glory that he deserves for living a perfectly righteous life and giving that righteousness to us through his atonement on the cross. David summarizes it beautifully in Psalm 16, verse 2. He says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Our problem often is that we look at the law and we feel our sin and our need of grace. And then we turn and look at our neighbor and we say, actually, I'm pretty good. Or we turn on the news and say, you know, I'm, I'm okay. I'm a pretty good person. We lose the humility that came when our sin was exposed by the law. And in our pride, we lose sight of that, our great need of grace. And so though we might confess a gospel of grace for salvation, we see ourselves and often we see others through a gospel of works. So in this passage in Galatians, Paul is passionately trying to clarify these two categories. The, prom the gospel promises delivered to Moses uh, delivered to Abraham, excuse me. The gospel promises delivered to Abraham and the law delivered to Moses. He's trying to clarify those two categories because they're getting mixed up by the Judaizers. The gospel promises given to Abraham are the promises of redemption and of grace that all point to Christ. And Paul is saying the law given to Moses, which came 430 years after uh, the promises to Abraham, that law was never meant to make us worthy of the promises the promises have never been predicated on the law. They came after the law. The law just reveals how desperately we need grace and moves us to believe and hope in those promises all the more. Now, the Judaizers are not the first group to confuse the gospel promises to Abraham and the law given to Moses. 
the Pharisees did the very same thing. So before we go even deeper into our passage, and this is a difficult passage in Galatians, so I want to just give you a, a, a snippet of a conversation Christ had with a Pharisee named Nicodemus to, I think, really bring some clarity around what Paul is addressing. Because right? Christ addressed the very same issue with Nicodemus that Paul is addressing with the Galatians. In John 3, Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, comes to Jesus by night and says to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs you do unless God is with him. And Jesus responds to Nicodemus, thanks so much. That really means a lot. Thanks for believing in me. No, he doesn't say that at all. He sees Nicodemus's heart and immediately tells him, you must be born again. You will never see the kingdom of God with all of your works and all of your law and all your accomplishments. You must be born again. Now, just to give you a picture of what Nicodemus has accomplished, he is a member of the Sanhedrin, which means he is old, he is educated, and he is rich. Right? He's a member of the cultural elite. He's also a Pharisee, like I mentioned, so his life had more morality and tradition than Mother Teresa, more discipline than Kobe Bryant, like rolled into one. This is Nicodemus. You couldn't clean up his life anymore. And if that's not enough, he had most of the Old Testament memorized, like the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, sometimes called the law, right? And the book of Proverbs, he had all that memorized. Nicodemus is the greatest religious leader in Israel at the time. Christ calls him the teacher of Israel in John 3, verse 10. And Jesus says to this elderly, wealthy, educated, influential, powerful, squeaky clean guy, you must be born again. The gospel is not a call to be good and go to church. It's a challenge to man's morality and religion. So to help us understand the purpose of the law, Jesus is, chose a person who on the outside seems to keep the law perfectly, and he says to him, you need to change. You must be born again. Why? Because the message of the gospel, the message of salvation is not a call to be good and go to church. It's a challenge to that idea. Jesus comes to the most impeccably good person and says, you have to start all over. Jesus says, everybody must be born again. That's everyone in this room, everyone in your extended family, every member of the human race, everyone who has walked the face of this earth, that includes you. You must be born again. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's, he's taking away our self-defense our, our self mechanism. He's taking away our excuse, our carefully built reputations. He's saying nothing you have done has mattered. You are no further ahead than anyone else. In John 3, Jesus confronts an incredibly moral person in the last years of his life and says, Nicodemus, your life has been wasted. Nothing you have done has mattered. All your money, your morals, your degree, your pedigree, your race, your Bible knowledge, your missions trips, your family time, they don't make you further ahead than kids in the slums of Mumbai, India, than drug addicts in prison, than pregnant high school dropouts. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew 21, 31, that it's easier for prostitutes and criminals to enter heaven before people like you and me who grew up in the church who seem to have their lives together. Why? Because they feel their helplessness. Why do you need justification by faith and not the law? 
You are helpless. I'm helpless to save myself. I need someone to put life in me. I have only deadness on my own. That is the truth behind the visual of the new birth. Being saved, being born again. It's, it's this passive, right? Someone is delivering us, giving us life, putting life in us. I love the, the images that scripture uses to give us pictures of salvation like birth and adoption to show how helpless we are and how desperate we are for God's love and his grace. And I'm giving this picture of Jesus's witness to Nicodemus because he does with Nicodemus what the law was designed to do, to bring us face to face with the reality of our sinfulness, to save us from hoping in ourselves, to save us from comparing ourselves so we begin to understand our desperate need for grace and give that grace to those around us. When Moses read the 613 moral, civil, and ceremonial commands to Israel, and the congregation responds in Exodus 24, all that is spoken, we will do, it immediately shows that they didn't understand the purpose of the law. They should have said, all that is spoken, we cannot do. All that is spoken reveals our sin. All that is spoken just makes us want to sin more. All that is spoken makes us desperate for mercy and grace every day. Thank you for not conditioning your steadfast love on us, for, for us on our ability to perfectly keep your law. So let me ask you, how does your heart respond to the commands of Scripture? When you're reading your Bibles, when you see a command, how does your heart respond to it? Do you think of someone else in your life who needs to fulfill that command? Do you think of how you're doing well? We will either respond with pride that says, I'm good, I can do it, or with humility that says, have mercy on me, a sinner. What made the gospel of grace particularly hard for the Judaizers, that this group that is teaching this false gospel to the Galatians, was not simply how it challenged their view of law and their view of salvation. It was a challenge to how they saw their identity. We've talked about this before, but their whole identity was encultured in a religion of works. To accept a gospel of grace, to accept that the Mosaic law had served its purpose to reveal sin and it was no longer necessary would have felt like a betrayal for them. And it would have been seen by their culture as a betrayal. They would have certainly been rejected by their communities for it. And that's why Jesus is telling Nicodemus, this is everything. You have to be born again. Justification by faith is not just one part of your life. It's not just this free ticket into heaven. It's not just preparing you for eternity. It's starting all over in how you see yourself, how you define yourself, the community you find yourself closest to. We can enjoy cultures, our relationships, and many things in this life as gifts of God, but they do not tell us who we are. And any pressures that exist within those relationships and cultures are not what make us acceptable to God or righteous before God. They are not what justify us. They are not what define us. Sadly, not only do we misunderstand the purpose of God's law, that it gives 
us this gift of humility. So we stop looking to ourselves and, and look up and worship God and look to others, not with expectations of them, but to love them. Sadly, in our pride, we not only misunderstand the purpose of the law, but we become lawgivers in other people's lives. We write our own laws for our homes. We carry our law in our pockets with us. They're very portable. It's the things we value, the things we cling to, the things we make explicit in our relationships that matter and that must be met. Those who keep our law receive our love. Those who break it will get our disapproval in some way. They'll feel unacceptable in some way before us. I just want to spend a few moments here because we all do this. We proclaim a gospel of grace for salvation, and we live a gospel of works in our relationships. And it can make people feel continually unworthy around you. And you might feel that way in some of your relationships. I want us just to ask as a community, like, what is the law of Lighthouse? Like, if someone's visiting our church, are there things we value and do that unintentionally shame them because they don't, they don't match kind of the things that are important to us, things that we maybe we've added to the gospel? What is your law? What do you value and do that unintentionally shames others or makes them feel unacceptable before you? What do they need to do? What requirements do they need to fulfill? I think about the way we talk about careers, education, money. Consider how we talk about other people and their shortcomings or their accomplishments. Think about the way we flatter, the way we gossip, mocking, sarcastic put-downs, what we complain about, what we get angry over. What do we lift up? What do we put down? What are we for? What are we against? All of those things make our law explicit in our relationships and in our community. And in our community, it can tempt people toward fear and confusion and anxiety and hopelessness and shame because we all want to be acceptable. We all want to be loved. And for those of you in authority, I would say particularly parents, hear me, Please hear me. Do your children have to do anything to receive your love, to receive your smiles and your affection and your grace? Are there standards you set for your family and your home that communicate with you? Are there standards you set for your family and your home that are, are your standards communicated with humility? And do they clearly show that you care for the person's highest good, not making demands for them to serve your idols or your comforts? You know, our upcoming small group series is uh, going through this book called You're Not Crazy, Gospel Sanity for Churches. And I love how it connects the, the gospel doctrine with gospel culture. And one of the things the author is saying is for us to say that we believe a gospel doctrine must show itself up in gospel culture that lives on grace and that loves and ministers grace to one another. Living as a church means to live, as, to live on grace. I mean, just imagine what your relationships would feel like this week if, you just, if we had one week where we didn't flatter, gossip, mock, we didn't sarcastically put down, we didn't complain, we didn't unlovingly confront, 
We didn't vent our anger. We rather, just this week, we took an opportunity just to honor, encourage, delight in, appreciate, build up, magnify what Christ is doing, what the Spirit of God is doing in someone's life. I've never had someone come into counseling because they were so encouraged in Christ, they didn't know what to do. I genuinely believe that living on grace in that way together will not only help our relationships and our own hearts understand the freedom that comes from justification by faith. We'll understand that doctrine and it will protect us from living on the law. The law was added so that we would look to Christ alone for life. And that's our next point. Not only does the law reveal our deadness, it points to the promised savior. It points to the promised savior. Paul is saying the law clarifies where to look for life. Let's look at verses 21 through 25. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Right, that's what we've been talking about, the promises given to Abraham, the law given to Moses. Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So the law has told us to look away from ourselves, to look to the promises of God given to Abraham that would be fulfilled in Christ. Verses 24 and 25 tell us the law was this guardian. You see that word or your versions might say tutor, guardian, tutor. And what was the law teaching us as a a tutor? What was it telling us as as a guardian? How is it guiding us? It was saying, you are dead in sin, but God has made a way through the promised Messiah. The law was there to help us feel dead and desperate, but not utterly hopeless. The law actually directs our hope and faith toward the promise of Christ. Look at all the times the word until is used in this passage. This shows how the law's fullness is found in Christ. Verse 19, until the offspring should come. Verse 23, until the coming faith would be revealed. Verse 24, until Christ came. Now this passage might be a little confusing because there's so many different words like imprisoned and held captive and and those verbs have different objects like sin and law. But Paul is not saying that our faith was imprisoned or that the law prevented Israel from trusting in the promises. It means the law showed us our captivity under sin, our deadness and slavery and bondage under sin, how sin so limited us, how our pride and arrogance and sin just kept us in bondage to ourselves. And looking to the promise of Christ sets us free. I think one thing that might get confusing is that in verse 22, it says, scripture imprisoned everything under sin. And verse 23 says, we were held captive under the law. But what Paul is explaining is how the law revealed our bondage to sin. Living under the law lets us see our chains. But that's not all the law does. It doesn't just reveal our sin and say, abandon hope. It directs our hope to the promised one, 
to the promised seed of Abraham, to Christ. Christ lived the perfect life under the law that we could never live. And he died on the cross, taking the punishment for all our lawlessness, all our sins, and rose again, giving us hope of being forgiven, of being brought into a right relationship with God on the basis of his merit and not our own. Right? There's this beautiful hymn to see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a son and duty into choice. Right? To see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a son and duty into choice. The law does not just reveal our bondage, it reveals the one who would set us free. That is why Christ was our long-awaited Messiah, right? If the law was meant to make us righteous, it makes no sense for Christ to be called the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, right? The law takes away our sin as we prove ourselves and prove our righteousness. It makes no sense for the law to include an intricate sacrificial system that just continually reminded all of the people of their great need of grace, their constant struggle with sin, all of that pointed to the need for a rescue. The law pointed to the promised savior. Have you ever played a sport and lost? No, I'm just, yeah. Not in the South Bay, we're, no. Have you, yes, well, I've lost, I'm sure we all have, right? Um, we lost badly, been on a losing streak. What, do, what does losing a game, what is being on a losing streak, what does it clarify? I, I, other than just helping you consider areas you need to improve, like maybe learning from mistakes you made in a game, I think a loss forces us to ask why we play. And I think it's a good question for us to ask. It gives us the opportunity then to make God the greater reason for why we play, why we do what we do. Um, I grew up playing like one sport. I was on a swim team and I don't really remember my wins and losses too much. I don't remember learning a lot when I lost. I don't, it was, that was not the big thing. My, my bigger area of competition growing up was piano. Right? So that, and that was a blood sport. Like that was, oh my goodness. I remember every loss and every win because what went into, into that was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of practicing, of saying no to hanging out with friends. Like the cost and the sacrifice for that was, was huge. I gave up a lot for that. And so when I lost, it really sent me on this road of asking why. And I remember after losing some of those competitions, just talking to other pianists who also lost, because that was most of us who were there, right? Because there's like one winner and then a bunch of losers. And we're all just feeling like, wow, all of that work is, what was it for? Like learning these intricate pieces so carefully by dead white European males that no one else is gonna ever listen to. All the stuff my parents had to hear me play at home and what was it all for? All those sacrifices, all that isolation, was it meaningless? Was it empty? Was it futile? All those losses clarified for me why I studied piano. And I had to learn that it wasn't for me to find out who I was or to show my greatness or 
to get an applause. It wasn't for the smiles and appreciation of my parents or my peers or my teachers. Losing forced me to ask why I studied, and I slowly learned that I didn't study piano to find my life. I didn't go to the piano to feel great about myself. I usually felt terrible when I would practice. I slowly learned that I went to piano not to feel accepted, not to receive love, but to see that God was my life, to see that piano was a gift from him to express his love to others, to worship him. And it was a gift I didn't deserve, but that he richly has given, had given to me. And the more I could understand that, the more I could actually honor God with that gift, enjoy that gift, not feel miserable over competitions or practices. And I, I, I honestly could say that after I could answer that why, I really enjoyed piano way more. And I even enjoyed practicing and, and competitions and more I played better. In some ways, the law does that. We look at the law, at the commands of God, and say, I'm a failure. What's the point? I'm trying so hard. I'm trying so hard. I just keep failing. I'll never measure up. And yes, in part, the law was meant to reveal our helpless state, our desperate need of grace, but it's also meant to protect us from looking to ourselves for life. The point to the promise of Christ to say, he is your life. You are never meant to look to yourself for life. In a world where it is always about doing more and being better, can we just say together that this is all dead, that there is no life here, there is no righteousness for us here. There is nothing in us or in this world that is going to ever make us truly acceptable before others or before God or before ourselves. God's law is meant to show us our great unworthiness so that we keep, so that we keep living for Christ who alone is worthy to live for, who alone is worthy of praise. It humbles us so that we can lead others in that same direction to magnify Christ. It tells me I'm the chief of sinners, not so that I would feel miserable all the time, but so that I can count others as more significant than myself and love and serve them and look out for their interests and minister God's grace to them that I humbly received from him. You see what a gift the law is. It rescues us from the misery of a self-made righteousness. It rescues our relationships from our selfishness and pride and sets us free to just magnify Christ, to say with David in Psalm 16, O Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. The law was given to rescue all of us from ourselves and in doing so, rescue all our relationships from exalting man so that together we can exalt Christ. You are helpless. Everyone around you is helpless. This world is helpless. We must stop looking to ourselves for life. The law was added, not so, we would look to, so that we would look to Christ for life alone. And the sooner we do that, the sooner we will be free to enjoy this life he's given us and all the gifts he's given to us and all the people he's given to us. 
But not only does the law reveal our deadness and point to the promised Savior, finally, it shows us God's heart. It shows us God's heart. The promises of God, the promises of God and the, the law of God comes from the same heart. They reveal the same character and love. The purpose of the law is, this purpose of the law is vital because it, it shows how sin is not just breaking some abstract law that's kind of floating in the air somewhere. It's to, sin is really thinking little of who God is, to think little of his character, to think we have a better way. Sin is thinking his way is bad. His story is bad. And really, in the end, that means he's bad and we are good. Our way is right. When we say, I've grown comfortable with sin, what we're really saying is I've grown comfortable with despising the very heart of God, despising what he wants for me and living my own way. So while this is a relationship of grace defined by his promises and not our works, we can take that revelation of his character for granted in our sin. Like the moral law that has been written on our hearts, that is included in the law of Moses, and that is frequently repeated by the apostles in the New Testament, shows us both the righteousness of God and his love for us. But the sins we grow comfortable with, the areas of life that remain unchecked, all reveal the ways we are thinking little of God and his love for us. Right? Think about what God is actually wanting for us from his law. Right? Commands like, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal. They show us the heart of a covenant-keeping God. And they are repeated and expanded in the New Testament to show that God wants his love for us to be enjoyed, even in the way we think about people and not lusting for them or being angry with them sinfully or envying you know, growing up in the, the South, I used to think that the law was just this avoidance ethic. I, I grew up in Alabama most of my life and before I moved to California. Growing up in the South, the law was just this avoidance ethic, right? The law mainly told you not to hang out with certain people. That's the law of the South. Don't hang out with certain people. Um, it told you what clothes not to wear. In Southern culture, a great emphasis was placed on outward appearance. I remember hearing like, if you listen to secular music, or if you dye your hair, or if you're a woman and you wear pants, or if you read out of the NIV Bible, those are all examples of worldliness that need to be avoided. I remember getting rebuked one time for buying coffee at Starbucks, right? Because I was being too fancy and materialistic. Right now I get rebuked for buying coffee at Starbucks for other reasons. No, 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 I, a lot of love for Starbucks. There. Um, so I, I, it's no wonder so many people I knew growing up hated Christianity, right? Because it seemed to be this oppressive, suffocating, and super confusing, unclear list of what you must not do. And all of that was your basis of being accepted. So then no one was really ever accepted. They were all just trying to kind of keep up with appearances. That is not God's law at all. Right, Romans 13, 8, Paul says the law can be summarized with one word, love. The one who loves has fulfilled the law. He says the one who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. So then when we study the actual commands of scripture, not the man-made ones, when we study what God calls us to do, especially as the ones that are repeated in the New Testament, we are seeing love, 
God's love for us, not some abstract, confusing, always changing, never ending rule book. It is just commands that lead us to love like he has loved us. That is why so many beautiful things are written about the law of God in scripture. So I just want us to consider some of these verses that I think might help us just cherish the law of God. I'm putting them up here on the screen because I'm going to read a few different ones. Psalm 19, verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple, right? Why does the law of the Lord revive the soul? Because it is a law of love. It shows us the heart of God. Verses 9 and 10 of that same chapter, right? The the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter than honey and drippings of the honeycomb, right? How could rules be sweet and precious? It's because they reveal the heart of a God loving us. Paul in Romans 7.22, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. I mean, he's going to go on to talk about the wrestling between another law, but he delights in the law of God. And 1 John 5.3, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. The only way for the commandments of God to not be burdensome is if we don't at all look at them on the basis of our relationship and what makes us acceptable before God and entirely as a display of his love for us. I think probably the greatest collection of beautiful poetry about God's law is Psalm 119. And what amazes me is that Psalm 119 is, is written by someone facing unspeakable suffering. I don't know if you guys have studied Psalm 119, but it is written by someone who is in immense suffering. It is just suffering after suffering after suffering. We often just think about it as a, a chapter in the Bible that is about the law or the, the word of God. But it is about that, but he is in the midst of his suffering, clinging to the preciousness of the law of God. He says in verse 70 of Psalm 119, the insolent smear me with lies. Their heart is unfeeling for me like fat, but I delight in your law. In verse 72, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. In verse 92, if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. He's saying, if I didn't have this kind of light shattering the darkness and showing me what's true and lovely and beautiful, I would have lost myself in this suffering. I absolutely lost myself. I would have been undone by the pain I'm in. In verse 97, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Verse 136, my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Right? I, can you hear the compassion and the longing for people to know God, to know his love, to find life in him, to know his heart? And possibly my favorite verse in the entire psalm is the very last one, verse 176. It starts with, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. You know, this is like coming at the end of a a chapter where it's just, I love your law, I keep your law, I meditate on your law, and it ends with, I forgot your law. I went astray. I've broken your law. 
after 175 verses of exalting and enjoying God's law, of savoring what the law says of who God is, he ends this psalm by confessing sin, of breaking God's law. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. But what does he say after that? Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commands. Because he understood the law. It was not what made him righteous and acceptable. It's not what gave him a relationship with his shepherd. What gave him a relationship with his shepherd was the grace and love of his shepherd. You see what a beautiful picture of God's heart the psalmist had, the confidence that his shepherd who will seek him and restore him, that his sin had nothing to do with his acceptance. Do you see his faith in the promised love of God? The law was never meant to reveal that we are naturally good people and that we can save ourselves. The law exposes our sin. It points to the promised Savior, and it reveals the heart of our loving shepherd who continually lives to rescue us again and again as we wander and wander. The wrong use of the law was to make it a means of achieving righteousness. The right use of the law was to help us see our sin against God. And you might think, Pastor Tim, this is just foundational gospel one-on-one. We are saved by grace through faith and not works. Yes, that is the beautiful simplicity of the gospel that even a child can understand. But how often do you wrestle with thoughts of not being enough? Being enough for yourself, being enough for someone else, doing enough for God. That is a longing to be justified. And you will never achieve it through working. It must be a gift of grace given from God. And it is a gift of grace we must give to one another within the church to live well, to live a life that proclaims the true gospel is not to live perfectly and sinlessly. It is to live on grace, to live on the grace that is given to us by God. May we be a church that humbly lives together this way, never looking to ourselves or anyone else for life, but desperately running to Christ for grace and knowing that every time we fail, our loving shepherd will seek us out. Let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for loving us. We come to you this morning as wandering sheep who continually hurt ourselves, who hurt others, who desperately need grace and forgiveness from you and from others. And yet, Father, we are so thankful that we get to be both individually and as a community defined by how you have loved us, how you have set your love on us, how you have rescued us all on the basis of what Christ has done for us. May we rejoice in that, Father. May we cling to the rock. May we hide ourselves in the rock of Christ and rest and listen to the pardoning, pardoning voice and the grace of our Lord. Thank you, Father, in Christ's name I pray. Amen.